Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Heard Tell. Uh, welcome to Heard Tell and welcome to Thursday. It is March the 17th, year of our Lord 2022. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining us with the most precious thing you have, your time. And we're going to spend it on a couple of stories that need the noise of the news cycle turned down on them so we can get to some good information of our times. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the narrative going around on the right about how black voters are leaving the Democratic Party. Theodore Johnson has a piece out in the bulwark. We're going to talk about that. He has facts and data to back up what he says. We'll delve into that and that very important voting demographic in both the midterms and the coming 2024 presidential election. Also, a story out of Albany about youth caregivers that we'll end the program with. Uh, Youth caregivers taking care of the elderly, taking care of the chronically ill, taking care of siblings, not talked about a lot. Very important, though, to family structures. It's been that way as long as there's been families, trying to maybe normalize them and get a better count on them. Talk about that in just a little bit. Also on the program today, our friend Jericho Hill is back, an economist. Uh, he's going to be talking about gas prices. We're going to talk about inflation. We're going to talk about the messaging of both uh, the Democratic Party and President Biden and the Republicans that are trying to use it as a weapon. Who's got the better narrative? Who's got the better set of facts? We'll get into that with our friend Jericho Hill, along with a lot of other topics. Love having him on the program. But first, uh, let's go back to Ukraine, as we've talked about just about every day for three weeks now. President Vladimir Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, who has become something of a folk hero. He's certainly been the leader that his country desperately needs in this dark hour of them suffering under a illegal Russian invasion and the war crimes that Vladimir Putin is putting upon his people and his country. He addressed Congress. I want you to hear some of the things he says. Now, he's pitching for a no-fly zone, and I'm going to get into that in just a moment. But he goes to this imagery. He said, friends, Americans, this is from WRAL.com. You can find these comments all over. Friends, Americans, in your great history, you have pages that would allow you to understand Ukrainians, understand us now when we need you right now, he said through a translator. Quoting Zelensky, remember Pearl Harbor, terrible morning of December 7, when your sky was black from planes attacking you. Just remember it. Remember the September the 11th, a terrible day in 2001, when evil tried to turn U.S. cities into battlefields, when innocent people were attacked from the air, just like nobody else expected, and you could not stop it. Our country experiences the same. Every day, right now, in this moment. Stirring words, stirring imaging, strong imagery. We talked to our friend uh, Alice uh, Watson-Brown, and she talked about when she talked to the British Parliament, he used Churchill and Shakespeare, and he related very well. This man knows exactly what he's doing with PR. He knows to advocate for his country. So let me break this down for you this way. If I'm Vladimir Zelensky, I'm doing exactly what he's doing. 
I'm begging for interference. I'm begging for military intervention. I'm begging for a no-fly zone. I'm taking anything I can get, help anywhere I can to help my people. If I'm a member of Congress or if I'm President Biden, I'm also doing exactly what they're already doing and not doing a no-fly zone. The no-fly zone is too often in the commentary at being whiffed around as some kind of a magical in-between step between peace and war. That's not what it is. It's a tool. And the only way a no-fly zone works is when the first plane goes into the no-fly zone, you shoot it down. So anytime somebody says they want a no-fly zone, the first question you ask them, are you prepared to shoot down a Russian aircraft, military aircraft, or probably a bunch of them because they're not going to come by themselves. They're going to roll in their heavy and test your no-fly zone. Understand that's an act of war. We can talk about whatever the Russians have been doing in Ukraine. It's an illegal war. They're committing war crimes daily. But if we fire on a Russian jet, that is an act of war and we will be at war. There's not any happy hunting ground here where we're not going to shoot down Russian planes and not get in a shooting war with Russia. Now, we could install a no-fly zone around everything around Ukraine that's already under control of NATO and say, don't cross this line or we will wax you. We did that in Syria, places like El Dazar, where the Mercs uh, under Wagner, which is Russian controlled, decided they wanted to test America, and they only got about half of them back to no U.S. casualties. We may be able to do that sort of thing. But keep very clear eyed when people talk about a no-fly zone, including Vladimir Zelensky. He knows what he's asking here. The first question you ask them when they say we should have a no-fly zone is, are you prepared to shoot down a Russian aircraft or probably 10 or 20 of them? Because that's what it's going to take to enforce a no-fly zone. And are you ready for the consequences of that? Understanding that that is an act of war by all definitions. You're either going to have to go to war with Russia and stop it, or you're not. There's no magical fairies and magical in-between steps where this thing's just going to stop on its own accord. Vladimir Putin doesn't want an off-ramp. He wants this war. Now, even if it's going badly for him and hurting him, he's still not going to be anywhere near ready to stop prosecuting it. And using flowery language and using make-believe things, like we're just going to slap a magical no-fly zone over Ukraine and that's going to stop all the bombing, isn't going to help anybody. And one more thing I want to bring up when it comes to Vladimir Zelensky. We've heard over and over again in America, we're going to hear it this year, we're going to hear it in two years in 2024. I suspect I'll hear it every election for the rest of my life. This is the most important consequential election of our lifetime. Who would have thought that one of the really most consequential elections in our lifetime was Vladimir Zelensky? Barely got covered in the West. And when it was covered in the West, when he was elected to the presidency of Ukraine, it was mostly of, hey, this actor became the president of a country. Ha ha, isn't that a cool little story? Which is true. And a lot of Western press missed the backstory that if he didn't get elected in that election, Ukraine would already be like Belarus, a wholly owned subsidiary under Vladimir Putin. Levachenko in Belarus cheated in his election and then crushed the uprising that tried to get him out of power when everybody knows he is illegally there and cheated in that election. They had a stooge in place. He was going to be very pro-Russia. He was going to basically make Ukraine a vassal state. He was going to continue the vast corruption that had racked Ukraine for years. And by the way, that corruption isn't all on the Ukrainians because a lot of it was Russian subversion trying to take over the country. So you can miss me with all that mess. We know there's corruption in the country. They still don't deserve to be invaded. But the, one of the most consequential of our lifetime elections turned out to be an actor in the Ukraine with a name most people couldn't pronounce before all this happened. And now here we are a couple of years later, comparing him to Churchill and other great war leaders and he's addressing the U.S. Congress, and now nobody's laughing, and almost everybody's admiring him. 
funny how things work out. We're not as smart as we think we are. Sometimes we get heroes in unlikely places. More Herd Tell right after this. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. You know, one of the things we do here and we pride ourselves on is turning down the noise of the news cycle. And it doesn't matter which side or which ideology or which party is doing the noise. If there's noise, we want to get to the bottom of it and get to the good information to be had. We've done it about different demographic groups and voter groups. We've recently been talking a lot about the Latino voter groups and Hispanic voter groups. Uh, there's a great piece in The Bulwark from Theodore Johnson has written this, and he's taking on the concept that has been floating around for a while that black voters are leaving the Democratic Party. And he pushes back on it a little bit, and he has this kind of data. Um, he says, and quoting from his piece at the Bulwark, Trump received just 6% of the black vote in 2016 and 8% in 2020. On average, from 1968 to 2004, Republican presidential nominees earned just over 11% of the black vote, which means not only did Trump underperform the party average in consecutive elections, but he also did worse twice than every single Republican nominee since the Voting Rights Act of 65, except for two, John McCain in 08 and Mitt Romney in 2012. I would also throw in there that Mitt Romney was running against Barack Obama, probably had a whole lot to do with that. John McCain was running against, you guessed it, Barack Obama, probably had a whole lot to do with it. And even then, with Trump facing a not incredibly popular Hillary Clinton in 2016, he could only match what Romney could muster against the historic second term candidacy of Barack Obama. By the way, let's let's dispel another. Uh, there's never been a Republican alive in the last 40 years that was going to beat Barack Obama in that second election. It just was not going to happen. Uh, you can put away all your fan fiction regarding that. He was going to get reelected. Back to the piece. Uh, this should not inspire confidence in those Republicans who believe they are at the at the precipice of tent expansion. To put a finer point on it, what we are witnessing with black voters today is not an exit from the Democratic Party as much as a too much wokeness on the left and an appeal of Trumpism on the right. Rather, we are seeing black Republicans who chose to vote for the first black president or sat out the election or two so as not to vote against him return to their voting habits. Now that Obama is no longer on the ballot, and it seems that a couple of percentage points worth of those pre-2008 black Republican voters may have decided to ride it out with Democrats. How can I be so sure of this? This is uh, Theodore Johnson writing in the bulwark. Because few things have been as steady in American politics in the last 150 years as black voting behavior. The centrality of federally administered civil rights protections has always governed partisan alignment for the overwhelming majority of the black electorate. It used to be that the Republican Party carried this mantle, but since the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 64, Democrats have made addressing racial inequality a more prominent aspect of its platform. This, more than any other single factor, explains why 9 in 10 black voters support Democratic congressional and presidential candidates for decades now. One result of this is what scholars call electoral capture. Remember, we talk about audience capture on this show. We're going to talk electoral capture. Listen to this. Defined in the 1998 paper by political scientist Paul Freimer and sociologist John David Sturinsky. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I apologize if I'm not. Electoral capture occurs when a group of voters finds at least one of the major parties making little or no effort to appeal to their interests or attract their votes precisely because they perceive that group to be divisive. In a two-party system, these voters are left with only one viable option, and Freimer and Sturinsky I'm probably still pronouncing it wrong, so I took a second stab at it, argue that the group is likely to find its support taken for granted 
and its interests neglected by the other major parties' leaders as well. Capture can work both ways. Not only can parties capture certain groups, but groups and movements can capture parties. Uh, We've seen that one. The Tea Party movement in 2010 successfully captured the Republican Party, ousting congressional leadership, and Trumpism has almost completely captured the party today, penalizing and ostracizing anyone who dare contest it. In the case of black voters in today's Democratic Party, the capture is the product of three interrelated factors. Republican leadership views the prioritization of black electorate central policy demand, strong federal civil rights protections as harmful to standing within its heavily white base. Number two, as a result, to demonstrate alignment with its base, the party takes positions perceived to be resistant to the policies most desired by black Americans. And three, listen to this one. The Democratic Party, while willing to deliver on some symbolic and expedient measures that appeal to black voters, is not compelled to be as responsible to their demands it calculates to be more electorally costly, despite the black electorate's partisan loyalty. We just watched that happen. We just saw, remember, Joe Biden, electorally DOA. His campaign was over, and then he went to South Carolina. Jim Clyburn put his arm around him, and the black and African-American base of the Democratic Party ran not walk to the polls to support Joe Biden, along with a lot of more moderate and center-left Democrats, and the rest, as they say, is history. Like Johnson says in this piece, the the black Democratic voters are some of the most consistent in the country. Be very wary of people selling you something different than what they're doing without there being some kind of a paradigm shift to expedite that. Like he says in the piece, If you just write off people that you're not going to get their votes, you'll never get their votes. And those inroads can't be buzzwordy. There's Democratic candidates that found that out, that you can't just show up and get it just for being a Democrat. Looking at you, Pete Buttigieg, who, to his credit, has been working on it since we're told. It's not automatic. No group is a monolith. And when it comes to African-American voters, they are very informed. They know exactly what's going on. They understand their history and they understand the future they want to go to. And you better understand that as well if you go courting their votes, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. In other words, respect them and earn their vote, or you're not going to get it. That's the way we should be treating every people group. And we'll keep a close eye on this demographic going forward. More Hertel right after this. Ah, welcome back to Hurtel. All right, economics all over the headlines. We're going to go to our go-to on it, Jericho Hill. He works for one of them four-letter, not three-letter. I was corrected last time. Four-letter government agencies, but his opinion are his and his alone, unless they're correct, and then he really wants them to be his. Jericho Hill, how are you, my friend? Doing pretty good today. All right, let's try this real slow using small words for the folks from Logan and try to get through this one more time. Gas prices are a lagging indicator. Can you please explain why gas prices are a lagging indicator? Because we still seem to have problems understanding in the United States of America in the year of our Lord 2022. Gas prices are a lagging indicator. Uh, you should first specify they're a lagging indicator of what? Darn you, Jericho. Right. Just answer the question. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about economic conditions and whatnot. So, so yeah. So the point that, that Andrew, you're trying to, to, to make is that what causes gas prices to rise? A lot of that's been set months or years in advance. And so, for example, 
you know, if you make investments um, into more green energy technology, which takes, you know, several years to ramp up, um, those investments are not going to um, non-green to, to natural gas or to fossil fuels or stuff like that. So there's less capacity to ramp up. So when events happen, like what we've seen with COVID, there's an immediate sort of reaction. But then in terms of uh, being able to accommodate that new supply, I mean, I'm sorry, not supply, that new demand, right? Uh, you have to change your production and that takes time. Now, it's the easiest thing in the world for me to just go, this current debate over gas prices and blame and Putin and Biden, this isn't hard. Like gas prices were going up because we had a Democratic candidate who said, I'm going to end fossil fuels in America. That's going to have an effect. He has policies to that end. He wants more electric vehicles, so on and so forth. That's been his policy for a year. That affects gas prices in a lagging way. Some of the gas prices were already going up because of what happened before he came into office. Then Putin invades Ukraine. That raises the already high gas prices up. This does not seem that hard to me to have a delineation line of, okay, gas prices are Biden's fault up until this point, and then Putin made it worse from this point forward. Why can't we just discuss it that way? But no, we have to have a White House that says gas prices are all Putin's fault, and then the media goes nuts and go, no, they're all Biden's fault. It's, it's, there's this middle ground that we just skip over. Why do we do that? Uh, we skip over it because nobody wants to talk about the nuance of the middle ground. Um, it, it doesn't it doesn't send out uh, letters for fundraising. It doesn't uh, get people to answer the robocalls for 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 more funds, et cetera. And it doesn't get those angry letters that are that are sent in. Um, I, I think that that's part and parcel of why. I mean, and, and you're right. Look, we we did we had a changeover in admin from from less from from friendly to to fossil fuels to less friendly to fossil fuels. We had a pandemic that radically changed things. We had um, not just a response to like, you know, tr trucks and tankers getting in, you know, to, to, to get the gas and whatnot. But, you know, now we've got a response from folks being like, well, I don't really, you know, I, I need to commute more or I need to commute less. You know, some folks like myself don't even commute hardly anymore, um, which, which changes the calculus, you know, but, but you're right. The, the, I, I find it hard to um, pin the blame 100% on a president for, for lots of things that, that happened, mainly because, like, you know, if we think about it, right, COVID and a war, not really anything that anyone, right, could control, even the most darling of the right and the most darling of the left. So, you know, those things happen. So then what are the responses? And I think I, I'm going to tee you up on the next part that I think you want to go into is, you know, Biden has, the Biden administration has recently come out and said, well, here's our, here's our new budget idea, our new package of spending and plans and whatnot. And this is going to help reduce the deficit. And this is going to help lower the inflation. And this is one of those where I'm going to go, yeah, yeah. If, if we accept certain assumptions that they're making about how the spending will work and how it will go fund, fund things, that, that's very plausible. But it's also, yeah, but um, it works over years, right? It doesn't work over days, weeks, or months. So you can, you know, you can put all these, you know, you could say, let's, let's be exceedingly charitable and let's say, yes, they're entirely right. We grant them that point five years down the road. These investments that we're making are going to increase the productivity of our economy, handle supply chain issues and lower the overall rate of inflation, right? Okay, 
but that's five years from today. That's, that's not next year. That's not six months from now. Um, they're not going to do a whole lot in the next six months. The next six months are um, entirely predicated on um, how we continue to sort of come out of the pandemic into a quote, new normal, what happens in Europe. Um, and to be fair, I think maybe some folks might not appreciate this, but as economists, we do. It's not just the war disrupting you know, energy flow you know, out there in, in Europe right now. It's the fact that there's an extremely large amount of uncertainty in the market about what's going to happen two months, three months, six months from now that we didn't really have. And that uncertainty is a price premium. And we're all going to pay it. Talking to Jericho Hill, our economist friend. Okay, define uncertainty then, because people don't seem, you know, I have trouble getting my head around this too. We see things physically happening in the news, Ukraine, natural disasters, policies like pipelines being canceled, pipelines being approved, Nord Stream, Keystone. We can get our head around all that stuff. But the way markets work and the way the global economy work is the real decision makers and shot callers, they're trying to guess what's going to happen ahead of time. And when things like this happen, they don't know what's going to happen. That creates uncertainty. And that's almost as damaging in and of itself as whatever the breaking headline news is, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, look, let's just say you're a widget maker, right? And you're looking at an uncertain economic time or, or your uncertainty has increased. You don't know if the economy is going to be booming more or we're going to go into a recession and you're responsible for making widgets for a bunch of folks. So now you've got to adjust your forecast of how many widgets you need to produce for that uncertainty. That, that's, that's the fundamental problem. And, you know, it, it's something that we all deal with, but that's, you know, getting, getting beyond just the, 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 what you might say, the, the rich people making, you know, bets of what's going to, what things are going to be like six months from now. I mean, just, just down to more brass tacks. If you're, if you're trying to plan for what you need, if you're a business and you're trying to figure out what do I need to have in stock three months from now? Well, you know, the, War changes things a little bit, you know. The that that's part of the uncertainty that, that yeah, we we maybe don't appreciate. Yeah, talking to Jericho Hill. Let's talk about something that economists have to deal in numbers. They have to deal in facts. They can't deal in unknown unknowns and known unknowns, as Rumsfeld famously said. Sometimes we try and fail. Yeah, <laughs> it's a great line though. What it about a, a what about an economy like the UK? And I know you're an American economist, but where they, they've tolerated Russian money to a huge extent. There's just a river of oligarch money going through London. Of course, London's a financial center for the entire world. We've seen where Deutsche Bank you know, basically flat out refuses to even look at all their Russian money that goes through them. There's a lot of economy and a lot of the world economy that is unseen because it's just not tracked properly because it's designed to be that way. And when that gets interrupted, it starts showing up in the things that we do track. How does economists deal with that? Because that's a great unknown. It's, it's kind of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Everybody oh. knows it's there. But now we know for a fact it's getting disrupted, especially in England, when you see like Abramovich is losing Chelsea mm -hmm. and things like that. They, they can't hide it now. How do you adjust that into when you're looking at economic stuff? Well, for an economy such as like Great Britain or from the U.S., you know, for the most part, if one foreign country withdraws a substantial amount of, of inflow, you know, for whatever reason. Uh, it's, you know, it's unlikely to, to feel more than just maybe a speed bump when you're going a little bit too fast because those economies are so big, right? Um, 
what I think is more difficult to sort of figure out is exactly what exactly where the money is. And I want to I want to pivot to talking about yachts. So, you know, lots of commentators were like, let's just seize all the Russian yachts. Let's seize all the oligarch yachts, right? You know, punish them. And, and of course, we know some of those yachts. Like, we, we know who owns them. A couple of them have been seized. But so many of these sort of high-end ticket items, such as super yachts, are owned through shell companies, through shell companies, through management companies, you know, in, in a pretty... Uh, um, obscured uh, ownership structure. So how do you how do you really figure out exactly how much Russian money uh, is in you know the British economy or the US economy when certainly yachts are not the only thing that these complicated uh, business uh, arrangements are, 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 are done. Yeah, talking to Jericho Hill, our economist friend, we're going to break down some of those uh, economic sanctions, what's opposed, what actually bites, what matters, what doesn't, what's noise. Uh, Also talk a little bit more about the overall economic conditions. Our friend Jericho Hill, making economic things so easy to understand, even I can understand them when we come back on Hurt Tip. Uh, our friend Jericho Hills joining us here on Hertel. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you for joining us. Of course, the ethos of an economist is bad times don't last, but bad economics always last. Let me, that's a Scott Hall reference who passed away. We'll talk a little wrestling at the end. Uh, I, I very much appreciated that reference. <laughs> there you go. Rest <laughs> in peace, Scott Hall. But talking about some bad guys here, we were just talking about the dirty money, the oligarch money. Talk about, because you're an economist, but you're also a sports fan, you keep up with the culture. Explain to folks the ultra-wealthy, things like a sports team, like a Chelsea, things like a yacht. Those aren't just token toys. Those are also ways of parking money when you basically have no way to park massive amounts of money, any other way to do it, and you got to put it somewhere, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, art is another great example of a way to park money. Um, but, but certainly, so, of course, some of, the, some of the folks that, you know, invest in, in sports teams – do a very good job of increasing, you know, that investment and treating it like a business. And, and others, it, it is simply just as you said, uh, a money dump. There's, uh, I think this might be less of an issue for for most uh, American sports leagues, but certainly soccer throughout the world is a sort of well known dumping ground for for some of this. Um, real estate is another um, dumping ground. Um, you know, lots of uh, uh, there's also lots of you know uh, obfuscated. Uh, real estate holdings. So for, uh, at the very high end, it doesn't affect the average person when trying to buy a house. People don't buy homes that are hundreds of millions of dollars, right? Unless you're filthy rich. Um, but, you know, who exactly holds those very high end uh, real estate, you know, homes, you know, is, is another thing where, you know, you may not necessarily know who actually, you know, owns that house, um, but it's there to, to park money. It's a diversification strategy. You know, Wu-Tang. <laughs> Wu-Tang Financial. Uh, talking to Jericho Hill, master of many things, but mostly economic things. Okay. When we have an uncertainty like the Ukraine situation, this looks like it's going to be at least a semi-protracted war, at least through the summer, probably at the very least. How does the market start to adjust? Because they can't just keep bouncing out of fear and uncertainty. They're going to settle on something, especially if this starts looking like it's going to go for a while. 
What do you, because remember before this, we thought we pretty much had this summer economically figured out. The Fed's going to raise interest rates three or four times. Uh, We're going to have an election year. So they're going to, they're going to, you know, Jimmy the money. We're going to have another stimulus package. so They can run on that. We We thought we inflation under control. Yeah. Everything looked great. Yeah. We thought we had this year under control. Look at some point though, the powers that be are going to make a decision on what path to take. How do you think that shakes out here in the near term, probably over the next two, three months? Uh, I think I first have to say there's a lot of personal bias here about that path because um, I apparently have more than a quarter of Ukrainian blood in me. Um, So I have uh, a little bit of a loyalty sympathy here. I don't see this conflict ending um, nicely. I don't see it ending a whole lot anytime soon. It's going to cost Russia quite a bit. You know, their economy is already, you know, quite hurting. You, you can watch the, the ruble essentially do a roller coaster free fall. Um, and you can watch videos now of folks fighting for stuff in grocery stores, which is reminiscent of another time when Russia used to be called the Soviet Union. Now, um, you know, how it all, you know, I, I wish I could say how it all shake out. I, I don't know what the military situation is going to look like. I, I certainly have, you know, hopes that, that some Ukrainian solution is found uh, to the benefit of the Ukraine people. Uh, I feel great, feel badly for them um, and have been doing what I can to, to, to support the Ukrainian Red Cross and other such organizations that desperately need help. Um, you know, but you know, think about Europe now, and this is like in the short run, let, let, let's be a little more optimistic within the short run. Uh, Europe is going to suffer from pretty high uh, heating bills and, and, and energy prices too, because they're shutting down a lot of the uh, a lot of the oil and gas investments they were doing. And now you've got Germany saying, oops, maybe we don't want to shut down the nuclear power plants that we were planning on doing. Uh, maybe the best thing to be green is to actually build more nuclear power plants. Uh, I think that would be a really really good change yeah i i've kind of you know we love our analogies here i've i've taken to calling it like jules verne you know he got an astonishing amount of things right on journey to the moon that you know three guys on a couch we put three guys on a couch in a capsule he used a projectile it was a capsule they had to like he got a lot of stuff really right the problem was we needed to wait 84 years to NASA to figure out the really important stuff like, hey, let's not use a cannon. Let's build a Saturn V and get it up in the low Earth orbit. I think that's where we're at with some of the energy stuff right now where we can see the solution. We've figured out kind of the big picture part. Of, OK, this is possible and here's how we do it. But there's a whole lot of people that are still in the science fiction realm of, oh, we'll just put them in a cannon and shoot them up there. And that's how they're kind of dealing with this energy crisis stuff. That's not how the world works. We can see it. But we're still 40, 50, 60 years, whatever, maybe sooner with technology from really changing how energy, especially geopolitical energy and how practical energy for the poorer folks in the world are. Am I wrong in using that kind of analogy of like people can see it and then things like Putin kind of bring it back and focus like, okay, we're not as close as we are. I think Putin's action might have accelerated that timeline a little bit uh, for the Western world. Now, yeah, I think you're right. And when we, we just talked about substituting, you know, uh, coal power plants for uh, instead of uh, and, and use nuclear power plants instead, right? And, and seeing maybe there'll be a lack of environmental activism against uh, against nuclear power plants now going forward, particularly in Europe. Um, although nuclear power has been pretty stalled here in the U.S. as well, which is unfortunate. Um, you know, as an aside, right? I used to work for a power company, so you know, I like to think I know one or two things about power generation. So I'm going to bring some of that knowledge here. Uh, even if we today could build, you know. 100 nuclear power plants 
and we actually had a site to put them. The uh, distribution of that power is yet another complication. And our energy grid uh, still desperately needs repairs. It needs upgrading. You would need a lot of more additional substations. You need some you know, substation infrastructure upgrades. I don't know what you do about the Texas power grid. That thing's a mess. Um, yeah, you know, so just think about all those moving parts. We, we are still a long ways away from, from being able to, to move our economy off of uh, oil and coal. And this is what frustrates me about it is because we've had this technology for 50 years, 60 years. If we would have done this 30, 40 years ago, we wouldn't be in this mess in the first place. And that's the part I never hear anybody talk about is like economically, energy-wise, clean-wise, if we hadn't done all this silly moratorium stuff and kind of shot ourselves in the foot, we would be in a completely different place right now. Folks don't want to talk about that piece of it of, hey, we kind of dropped the ball on some of this if we would have just done it back then. I know the technology's gotten a little better. I know Three Mile Island. I know Chernobyl. But, I mean, God, Chernobyl was 40 years ago. You don't think our technology is better? And we now know Chernobyl was not a nuclear accident. It was a bureaucratic accident. Yeah, and also Three Mile Island was actually a success story in the sense that it happened and all of our safeguards worked. Um, And that's the point of a safeguard. Um, You know, also keep in mind that you know um this is economics right people respond to incentives price is an is an incentive right so we have long enjoyed in the u.s very cheap energy so the political pressure to move off of that to make investments that are costly up front that are cheaper in the long run but are costly up front there's not the political will to do that much like, and that's part of, I think to go back, to call back to earlier, that's part of the problem the Biden administration faces when they're arguing, hey, our spending plan that we're putting forward is going to help lower inflation and reduce the budget deficit. Because if we take them at face value and agree with their assumptions and agree that that's, that's what happens, it still is an effect that happens over time. And voters are not going to be voting on a policy that's going to help them in 10 years when they're wanting help in six months. Yeah, we're talking to our friend Jericho Hill, an economist. We're going to continue with him right after this as Hertel continues. Is it going to be six months, though? Because this feels like something that's going to have kind of a and immediate and intermarian and a long-term effect. Oh, I was I was just picking six months as a show as as as, a, as an example. Like you know, like six months from now we're going to be having an election, right? You might have all the best policies in the world, but guess what? If you're not helping people when they're wanting to walk into the poll booth, like you can go back and you can see, like you know, think about you know how like when we've seen changeovers in admin, particularly partisan changeovers in admin, it's always been related to some sort of crisis, which some what was the fault of the prior admin and some of that was actually just how the world works you know and stuff outside of their control you know it's akin to um a ship captain basically running into a storm which the ship captain could not control and then the ship captain makes the wrong decision when they get into the storm and some folks get hurt well the people that get hurt on this stuff though i'm talking to jericho hill economist uh four letter uh, organization dweller. My friend, the people that get hurt on this stuff, and you know this well because you focus a lot on housing and things like this, 
the problem with this is we talk about it online and the policy people have these great ideas about, oh, we're going to fix the energy problem. We're going to fix fuel prices. But it's the poorer folks and it's the underprivileged folks and it's the working class folks that are going to really get whacked hard on all these policies. We talked about it with the EVs online. We're like, yeah, yeah Secretary Buttigieg, you can tell everybody to go buy a $50,000 car, but that's not in a lot of people's budget. If they can't afford $5 gas, they're not going to go buy a $50,000 car to save $2 on gas. That's not how that no, works. No, they're going to have to buy an overly priced used car at this point. Which you can't get right now. Something you've been talking about on and on, the used, used car prices are 20% over sticker right now. I think We're 20- starting to see a slight improvement. It's starting. But then, of course, this Ukraine thing happened and- you know, but this is this, you, you've talked about the inflation was driven by things like used car and gas prices. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Those are things that affect working class people yeah. and below. It mm-hmm. doesn't affect the the commuter class quite as much. And I don't mean the commuter class I mean people commuting. I'm talking about people that have the option of whether to go into work or not. No offense. Yeah. Yeah. Present the, company the option, yeah. Well, look, I, I, I think I've, I think I've beat that drum a few times, you know, talking about how I'm in a very privileged position. And I recognize that. Um so yes, a lot of this hurts folks who are at the what we call lower to moderate income spectrum. These are folks that have to drive their their their, their kids to school. These are folks that have to drive to work. Um, these are folks that, that work as hey the maids that come and clean houses. How do they get to those houses? They got to drive, you know. So you know how you know how do those Paul? What can we do to help those folks? You know is really when I think about policy, what we should be doing and. You know, a lot of this is, you know, I'm going to go back and do, you know, uh, uh, what has been a, a pretty left-leading policy thing of cancel all student debt. And for me, thinking about it practically, um, that would pretty much be what we call a regressive tax in a sense. It would benefit mid and upper income earners much more than it would benefit lower uh, income earners. I think, you know, tailoring sort of our approach uh, is important, and so like in the in the student loan case, it's saying you know I've I've, I've been talking on Twitter and, and trying to talk to some policymakers like, yeah, cancel student loan debt for folks that tried to go to school and didn't complete and haven't completed for a long freaking time, right? You know, so something happened. Those are folks that are probably not making a lot of money. That student loan debt is probably hampering their ability to move to a maybe better or safer apartment, to get a better or safer car, to be in a better or safer school. That's sort of what we should do. I, if you, you know, you know, if if you're making a hundred thousand dollars a year and you have a, and you still have fifty thousand dollars from an English degree debt, I don't know what to say. I, I could see. I'm not. I'm not against the concept, I guess. I'm very much against the application of how they're talking about doing it because mm-hmm. there's better ways. You're just going to wipe it off the books and then the predatory lending situation that is the student debt economy, and that's what it is. It's an doesn't get in fixed. and of itself. It's going, it's going to make it worse. It's going to perpetuate it. Doesn't, it. it doesn't get fixed because you don't fix the incentives. No, because they're just going to crank up tuition more. In your, the education bubble, instead of popping and readjusting, which is what needs to happen, as painful as that's going to be, it's just going to expand now because you just wiped off one of the indicators that's going to make it go. Listen, I think you can tailor. I mean, so that's what they, you know, you can you can tailor it to, to actually help people that still really need it. Let's keep in mind we're still dealing with a K-shaped uh, economic recovery. What is a K-shaped economic recovery? Folks like myself. Um, our, our, our earnings have, have, have 
probably even kept pace or outstripped inflation. Uh, we certainly brought down our costs, right? I don't commute anymore. So, you know, I don't, I don't have transportation costs anymore. Uh, I don't eat out. So my food costs got a lot lower. Uh, even if food costs rise, I don't eat out. So that's cheaper. Um, and, you know, so, so that's been good times for folks like me. And for folks that are lower down on the economic spectrum, their unemployment rate is still elevated. They, um, you know, are starting to see opportunities to, to move but, and to get better jobs. But the fact is those jobs are just now starting to pop up. Um, you know, and those jobs might not be in the places that, that these folks are. And so, you know, and then they have to deal with, as you said, higher energy costs. They have to deal, um, you know, with higher food costs, right? We haven't even talked about the fact that, hey, does anybody remember that Ukraine is basically the weak capital of the whole world? <laughs> and um, I know we've been very American-centric, but you know who consumes all the Ukrainian wheat? It's Africa. And so we're staring at a famine potentially in Africa. And we're not even talking about that. Yeah, African Pivot 3.0 or whatever we're on now. Um, Jericho Hill, our good friend, economist, covering a lot of ground. Jericho Hill, uh, let folks know where they can follow you, your social media. You've also got an excellent little newsletter going that deals with housing. Uh, recommend people check out. Let folks know where they can find you, my friend. Thanks for the reminder, because it's middle of the month, so I need to go update my newsletter, which is jerichohill.substack.com. It's called Quiglian, which is named after John Quigley, a very famous and dead housing economist, someone that's, that did a lot of good for helping us understand housing econ. Um, just keep people wondering. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Motoconomist, uh, and you can seemingly find me on Herdtel on a semi-regular basis. Um, yeah. And you know you'll get me to talk if you mention wrestling. <laughs> yeah, we need to do a new wrestling one sometime soon because I got a lot of thoughts about what's going on with that stuff right now. But Yeah, but I, 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 you know, for folks that maybe didn't know the reference, I just want to explain it. So Scott Hall was a wrestler. One of the most important things about Scott Hall was that when wrestling was in its greatest heyday in the mid to late 90s, um, Scott Hall and another wrestler named Kevin Nash jumped ship from the uh, top dog WWE promotion to the WCW Southern promotion with Ted Turner, you know, um, and basically jump started a, a ratings bonanza where wrestling was actually cool and you could wear wrestling t shirts out in public and feel like you were actually cool for about two to three years. Um, that so he was a pivotal part of that. That was probably one of the biggest moments in the wrestling industry. Um, he though had a lot of personal demons, he had a lot of personal issues. Um, he, uh, basically turned into a drunk and just a, a drug addict and awful person. And then at the last moment reached out and got help from a former wrestler turned yoga coach, uh, diamond Dallas page, who's actually legit, um, and got him fixed up 10 years ago, got him sober 10 years sober, you know, and got him to the point that he could go back out there and meet the fans, dissipate, be backstage, even get inducted into a hall of fame. Um, and so while we're all, a lot of us are very saddened, you know, that he's, he's passed on, uh, we were talking earlier and I said, I'm really glad that, you know, he got to end his career on a high note where he was able to be back and contributing and, and be a great, um, you know, role model at this point, you know, and get to basically have his curtain call that, you know, everyone we hope gets to have because more often than not in professional wrestling, that's not the curtain call that pro wrestlers get. 
Yep. And curtain call was a sly inside reference too that I got and a few others will get. Uh Scott Hall, we should say he died uh complications from surgery. It wasn't something untoward. It wasn't unlike unfortunately yeah. too many wrestlers, bad things happen. He had uh a heart attack and then had a series of heart attacks, uh complications from surgery. He was sixty two years old. But I'm glad he got the redemption story. All right, buddy, we'll get around to talking just wrestling one of these days. Thank you for your time on economics today, though, sir. I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me, Andrew. Have a great day. Hey, we're glad you're in heavy rotation. Appreciate it. Welcome back to Heard Tell. You know, we end on a happy note or an uplifting note. This is a little bit of a melancholy note, but I want to highlight who's involved here. Uh, Albany Democrat and Chronicle, uh, Democrat and Chronicle.com. They have a long piece on caregivers and how caregivers need support and caregivers need some programs and some assistance from both government and private organizations for elderly care and disabled patients and the chronically ill. That's all good things. What makes this story unique and while we're highlighting it in our end of the show segment where we uplift things. It's who these caregivers are, young people. So when people complain about how young people are damaged or this generation is this and that, remember this stat. It is estimated, this is the Democrat and Chronicle, it is estimated that 5.4 million young people in the U.S. are caring for someone in their home, a number that researchers believe is greatly underestimated. They assist in the care for disabled parents, chronically ill siblings, elderly relatives, and their challenges and expenses vary. Some studies suggest they may have increased anxiety and depression and for most resources are hard to find. They have an extended uh, sense of isolation. They have an extended sense of need. Oftentimes, they are not equipped or have training formally for the things they are doing. So what they're trying to do is partner with schools to reach teens who provide care. But I want to go down to the bottom of this piece. And this is where it gets uplifting, even though this is a piece about the struggles and trials they go through. Kara Levine who is a home health care advocate and has championed the support of youth caregivers for nearly two decades. Listen to this quote, quote, they don't want to talk about it and they don't get the support from their peers, which could be a good source of support if everyone understood why you can't hang out for that day. Remember, we're talking about teens, young people. When it comes to supporting caregivers, Levine said the focus has primarily been on the adults because some families don't disclose what their children are doing and fear that it would be taken out of their home or otherwise punished. But she said that's not the answer. Quote, the answer is to provide enough support in the home that the young person can contribute in a meaningful way, but not be responsible for the whole thing. She added that the COVID-19 pandemic and the opioid crisis has increased the number of youth caregivers and the need to pay attention to them. What do we say on this program often? You can't with one hand complain about a generation that is stuck in perpetual adolescence or isn't becoming adults fast enough or isn't as mature as previous generation was. And with the other hand, infantilize them and hold them down and push them back and tell them that they can't do this, that, or the other. Normalizing these routines of young caregivers. No, we don't want anybody to be exploited. They should be carefully checked for that sort of situation. But youth caregivers and family dynamics, this is how it's always been since there was more than one human needing to take care of another one. And it makes all the sense in the world to formalize it, get it out of the shadows, and make sure they have the support they need and we can accurately account for them. If nothing else, we should be able to praise them. People taking care of their own family and friends in their communities, that's always worthwhile. I can think of very few things young people could do that can make a difference more than that. That'll do it for Hertel. Uh, thank you so much for watching or listening, whether it's on the YouTube channel, uh, the Big Talker Network's Facebook page. Those are where you can watch each and every episode we do. Or if you're listening on any of the podcasting platforms, please make sure you subscribe. 
important for a couple of reasons. One is you won't miss anything we have going on. Uh, number two is uh, you can keep track of what we're doing and we can see what you're doing, what you're responding to, what you're listening, what you're downloading, and we can make adjustments. Also, there's ratings and review tabs. Make sure you use those. Let us know what you think. Let us know what you feel. Uh, you want to contact us directly, hurtellshow at gmail.com, hurtellshow on the Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. We've done segments based off of what you've asked us to cover or look into, and we'd be happy to do it again. So just one more time, thank you so much. We keep getting growth, and it's because of folks like you. Sure appreciate it. So wherever you are, across the street or around the world, we hope you and yours are well. We hope you are well fed. We'll talk to you tomorrow for more Hurtell. All the music on Hurtell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call. Click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.